the work of the Spirit places Jesus front and center. And the followers of Jesus who walk in the Spirit are concerned that Jesus is front and center. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We have said multiple times, just because I think it helps us think about the passage, that the upper room discourse, so when I say the passage, I mean, I mean uh, chapters 13 through chapter 17, that it's a transitional passage, that, that things are changing. And perhaps one of the most significant theological transitions in the entirety of that passage is the transition from the work and ministry of Jesus to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And obviously we've, we've talked about that. We've talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, multiple times because it's been in the text already. Remember Jesus says that he's going away, but the Spirit will come. And maybe you can think of times in your life when something changed and maybe, maybe someone, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it was a boss, maybe you switched bosses and the, the previous boss was there and then they moved on to a different department or, uh, or um, maybe you can think of the situation at Grace Bible Church just a few years ago when, or last year when we transitioned pastors and there was someone who was here and then uh, there was a different person in place. Uh, maybe, dads, you can think of a time when your wife left for a few days for maybe it was a ladies' trip or a ladies' conference or whatever, and it, that placed you in the driver's seat of parenting. And so for a moment, for a few days, there, there was that transition. And, and ideally, in those times of transition, you're going from a good thing to another good thing. You don't want the children, you know, sobbing that mommy is leaving. Don't leave us with dad, right? Of course, there's sadness, I understand that, but there's also sadness on the part of dad because mommy's leaving, right? I don't want you to think of this passage the way the disciples do in this passage. They, they get it later because the Spirit shows them and guides them in all truth. But when it's happening, they're hearing the words of Jesus and they're going, why? Why are you leaving? This is bad. They're the children at home sobbing uncontrollably because mommy is going. And they don't understand how this could be a good thing that mommy is going. The disciples here are very confused. In fact, Jesus uses the word grieving in this text. They don't understand why this transition is necessary. Perhaps another way to think about this passage would be, we just recently, we just recently had the Olympics. You can think of a, a relay run, for those of you who maybe ran track. And in that, pass, in, in that particular race, the, 
the baton is, is handed off and someone continues the run. Or disaster happens and the baton is dropped. That particular illustration is very limited. But I think it's helpful, that visual of the baton race. I think it's helpful because the runners all have the same goal, don't they? The goal is to hand off the baton so they can win. Right? The goal is to win. And maybe when you're in competition, that's your goal. There's two kinds of people in competition. Those who say, let's have fun. And those who say, let's have fun by winning. The former type of person who says, let's have fun. I don't think you really understand the fun of winning, apparently. But the goal in this race is to win. And in this transition, Jesus finishes his part. He finishes his duration of time on earth, which is what God ordained for him as the son. And he hands the ministry to the spirit. Now, the reason it's limited is because obviously Jesus is still working. You understand that. But there are specific things that the Spirit now does in the lives of believers, in the life of the church, that Jesus places in the hands of the Spirit because He departs. And so it's with that background that we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read down to verse 15. But now I am going to Him who sent me, And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This morning, I think it's very obvious to see that in this moment of transition, there is, from Jesus to the Holy Spirit, there's immense application for us in our age of the church because this is the age in which we now exist. We function and operate in this time, in the time that was initiated after Jesus departed. This initiation is the time of the Spirit. And so what Jesus says to his disciples here bears wonderful application for us who now live in the same age as they did after Jesus departed, which is the time of the Spirit. And so it's amazing to think that as Jesus says to them, which seems, some, which seems so uh, counterintuitive, 
that he would leave and it would be better for them. Jesus, Messiah, Son of God would leave and it would be better for them that they leave. That, that, that goes against everything that they understood, especially from the Old Testament. That their great encouragement that they would understand eventually that it is better that he goes because it brings in this new time where the Spirit now reigns and works and continues His works, is the same age and time in which you and I live. So you could say it this way. The time that God has for His people, where the Spirit is continuing the works of Christ, is the time you are in as well. So when you get discouraged about the times, when you get discouraged about where we are in life or about culture, you have the Holy Spirit. Because this is the age in which we are now. And so this morning I want to show you from this passage that God has commissioned and equipped His people in this time to work His works by walking in the Spirit. God has commissioned, we have something to do, And he has equipped, we have what we need to do it. His people, in this time, right now, you say, well, why would Jesus leave? To bring in a new time, a new age. And in this time, is the one where you and I now exist. You and I now function. And we continue the works of Christ by walking in His Spirit. Let's pray. We'll begin to work through this text together. Spirit, teach us, we ask. Do what you do. It's amazing to think, even as we studied already back in chapter 13, that what we're about to say you do you're going to do in real time in this room right now. And so, may your people have strength to obey. We ask through Jesus. Amen. Well, again, and especially if you're, if you're maybe not, you've not been with us up to this time, we've been in the upper room for a little while now. We're just just working our way through the Gospel of John, and so we're in this passage where Jesus spends his final moments, his final hours with those who are truly his. Judas has left at this point, which means he is now giving his instruction to those who are his true followers. This has been a, a significant, one of the most significant individual passages in all of the Gospel of John. And in fact, as we said, as we when we started it, this is the most significant lesson of Jesus or message of Jesus or primary unit of Jesus teaching in the entirety of the gospel. And we've run across various themes, right? What does it mean to be a, a true Christian? How can, you, how can you tell a true Christian from a fake one? We've talked about, uh, obviously, the vine passage plays into that. True, true Christians obey, true Christians love, and, and, and true Christians grow, right? And so we, we talked about the vine there. We, we were, we've already been introduced to uh, significant doctrine of the Spirit. If you want the fancy word for that, we refer to that as pneumatology or theology about the Holy Spirit. We've already been introduced to this back in chapter 13, referenced again in chapter 14, and then Jesus goes back to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit here. And actually, uh, when we talk about significance of texts, 
this is, in my estimation, I'm not the only one who thinks this, this is, in my estimation, really the only passage in the entirety of the Bible that specifically explains what the Holy Spirit does in the sphere of the world. Usually, you will find the passages about the Holy Spirit explaining what He does in the sphere of the church or in the sphere of individual believers. In my estimation, again, I'm not the only one who thinks this, this is really the only passage in the Bible that explains what the Holy Spirit does in the world. And so it is massively important that we understand this passage. Because if we don't understand this passage, we really don't understand the Holy Spirit. And actually what we'll find in this passage is if we don't understand the Holy Spirit, we don't understand God or the Son. So this is a very important text that we're about to go through. So pray that you have understanding as we go through it. There's some difficult things here. But the first thing that you see in, in our passages, verses five, 4 through 6, is that Jesus acknowledges how his disciples are feeling. And so first of all, look together. let's look together at the disciples' sorrowful agenda. The disciples' sorrowful agenda. But I have said these things to you, that's verse 4, uh, the beginning of verse 4, when he just finishes this idea of persecution. And remember, persecution isn't just be prepared for it when it comes. He actually says persecution, in the text we studied last week, is confirmation that you're truly one of my disciples. You will be persecuted because you've been called out of the world. You've been called out of the world, the world's going to hate you. But he says, I've told you these things, when the hour comes, you may remember them, that I told them to you. So he says, you're going to acknowledge when the, the, the events that I say will happen, i.e. persecution, when that happens, you will acknowledge that I said them to you. I did not say them to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, that's verse 5, and none of you asks me, where are you going? So Jesus says, I'm talking about departure again. Don't forget the reason we're here, is be, the reason we're here in the upper room is because I'm leaving. That's, that's why they're in the upper room, because he has final instruction for his disciples before he leaves. But none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. You are sad because I have said these things to you. Because these things remind you of one thing. And that one thing these things remind you is that I'm going, I'm going bye-bye. I'm leaving. And that makes you sad. And Jesus actually says something very fascinating in verse 5. None of you asks me, where are you going? Those of you who have been really paying attention know that two disciples have asked where Jesus is going. So why would Jesus say this? Do you remember who those disciples are? Peter in 13, Thomas in 14. Where are you going? They say this. You say, well, why would Jesus say this? Because Jesus Jesus wants them to understand that their interest, their, their concern, is still their grief. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, none of you have asked me where I'm going in the right way. Or you could say it in our vernacular, none of you has really asked where I'm going. You ask with your own motivation. You say, why are you leaving the earth? You're, or where are you going as far as maybe a location? Jesus says, none of you wants to know the motive. Husbands, maybe you, can, maybe you can think about it this way. It's when your wives say to you, I know you're listening, but you're not really listening. 
You know what I mean? I know you heard me, but you didn't listen to me. This is what Jesus is doing here. You've asked, but you haven't really asked. You've asked because you have something in mind for me. What the disciples have in mind for Jesus is their understanding of messianic deliverance. If you think just really briefly about the history of Israel, they're constantly in captivity, right? And then God redeems them. They're in captivity again. In Jesus' age, captivity to Rome. And so their understanding is that Jesus is going to be like Moses and that he's going to come like, like Moses did and free them from a different nation, free them from bondage. So that's their understanding of Jesus. That's their expectation for Jesus. Therefore, that's their agenda for Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus says he's going away, it doesn't fill them with curiosity. It fills them with grief. It doesn't fill them with interest. It makes them sad because they have their own interests in front of their face. And what Christ is doing is in conflict with what they want for Him to do. This is perhaps uh, nowhere better illustrated than in Acts chapter 1, literally, moments before Jesus leaves. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit has come upon you and when He comes upon you, you will be witnesses. But do you know what? sparks that answer from Jesus, this question, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Literally, he's about to ascend. And what's their concern moments before he ascends? Seconds before he ascends. Okay, you look like you're leaving, but you haven't restored the kingdom yet. Because they don't understand until the passage we read in our call to worship, Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And I don't think we are unlike the disciples in many ways in this regard. I think you and I often, as believers, well, maybe I'll just speak for myself, because maybe you don't. We have an agenda for Jesus. We have things that we think we're owed, or we have things that we want or maybe a circumstance or trial comes in our life, and our desire for Jesus to do certain things comes in conflict with what He is attempting to accomplish in our heart. So it might go something like this. I'm a Christian. I read my Bible. Why am I going through this trial? I've been trying to go to church. I've been trying to be more faithful. Why is this thing more difficult? Because what we want for Jesus is for Him to remove trial or to make things easier for us or to provide the bill or pay the bill or do whatever. And so our desire for Jesus comes in conflict with what He's intending to do in our lives and in our hearts. And we know what He's intending to do in our lives and in our hearts. To make us more like Him for the glory of God. Because it's both best for us and fulfills our purpose for God. And so again, I think we're in one of those situations where it'd be really easy to pick on the disciples for the lack of understanding. But we're in the exact same boat. Because often, we find ourselves in a conflict of interests with Jesus Christ Himself. So let's make sure we pray that our interests 
are in line with the person of Jesus. That our concerns are truly His concerns for us. And that our purposes are in submission to what we know He's intending to do in our lives. So first of all, we see the disciples' sorrowful agenda. But secondly, verse 7, we see Jesus' significant absence. His significant absence. And I use the word significant on purpose. This is massively important. This is significant but because without His absence, we have nothing else that's explained in the rest of the passage. Without Him going away, we don't understand the benefits of the Spirit. And this is where it has to be so confusing for the disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And this is where the disciples are probably going, I haven't understood much of what you said, Jesus, but I understand that, and it doesn't make sense. Come again? How is it better that you go away? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go... I will send him to you. And earlier in the upper room, we we read that God sends the Spirit. And so this is amazing to think, again, the the, the triunity that takes place, the unity that is in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So elsewhere we read that God sends the Spirit. And here we read that Jesus sends the Spirit. So God in unity with the Son, they send the Spirit together. They, They help their people by sending the Spirit. So this absence is significant. We need what God has ordained for us in His time. And what God has ordained for His disciples in this time is that Jesus leaves so that it ushers in the age of the Spirit and the working of the Spirit. And what we need for what we need in our lives for this time is the Spirit to continue this work that Jesus initiated. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we don't need the Son and God. But there are specific things that we need the Spirit for. Now, listen to me. More than ever in my life, and this isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because I know you feel the same way. More than ever in my life, I want Jesus to come back. More than ever. Now, that's a good desire. And you should be wanting the same. But there is great consolation in seeing the world crumble around us and seeing pain and turmoil and just wanting Jesus to come back, there is great consolation in this passage knowing that this is God's will where we are right now for His purposes. So want Jesus to come back, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it is God's will that we operate in the ministry of the Spirit right now. So let's do it. Jesus' significant absence. So I said, this is significant because we don't understand the rest of the passage without it because we don't have the Spirit without His departure. And so let's look together at what the Spirit does. Why is it advantageous? Why is it so important that the Spirit comes? So let's thoroughly look together at the Spirit's submissive acts. The Spirit's submissive acts. These are the acts of the Spirit. Remember, in the sphere of the world. Look at me at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world. This is why we say this is not, the, the, the location is not just the, the life of the believer and the church. This is what the Spirit does throughout the sphere of God's created humanity. This is what he's doing right now. 
And this is what he will continue to do until the, the day that Jesus returns. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that is what he does. And then Jesus very helpfully actually gives commentary on this. So let's talk about these acts together. And I use the word submissive, and I think you'll see why. Because if you notice, he continues the work of Jesus. The Son submits to the Father by obeying His work. The Spirit shows a form of submission to the Son. And you'll see this even later when he says, when, when Jesus says that He will glorify Me. He shows us a form of submission to the Son by saying, you started this, now I will continue it. There's massive unity in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Do not think of it as one is more significant or important than the other. Those are not good terms. What you should think of it as beautiful unity and even humility. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are perfect evidences of perfect humility. Even in their godness, they show a submission to one another. It's astounding. I'm not even be willing sometimes to be submissive as a human. I'm not even at times willing to be humble as a human. And they show humility in their deity. So what will the Spirit do? What are the acts of the Spirit? Well, as you see, we find this word convict. He will convict the, wor the world. Now, you might actually have a translation that says something like convince. And that's because this is a, a decent translation of this word. This word is a little bit like uh, the word paraclete. We've already talked about, remember, the, the word paraclete is the Spirit Himself. Remember we said involved in that word paraclete are multiple dimensions. It's a multifaceted word. It has the idea of comforter. It has the idea of teacher. It has the idea of advocate. We have the same kind of thing going on here. One word with multiple definitions. Multiple, or not definitions, but implications. And so uh, there are several implications here. And one of them, it has the idea of convincing. I just mentioned that. That's how it's used in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That has the idea of persuading the brother that he is in the wrong. You have gone to the brother. You have persuaded him, convinced him by a form of conviction that his, sin is, that his sin is legitimate and that it needs to be dealt with. Another potential implication of the word here has the idea of judicial conviction. And this is probably what you heard when we read the word because this is how we tend to use it as 21st century Americans. We tend to think of it as, as legal conviction. The, the, the other possibility that this... Uh, passage, the, the idea of, of conviction uh, includes is that the Spirit comes and He proves something. He, 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 he gives evidence, and in a form, it's, it's another form of, of, of judicial conviction. But, but He gives evidence, and He says, look at this evidence, and it's a, a proof. I think you should bear all three of these ideas in mind. But in my opinion, the main scope of this word conviction is the idea of judicial conviction. 
And I think we see that very clearly in even the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 46. Uh, Which one of you convicts me of sin? That's Jesus talking. I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Which one of you, in a, in a, prosec- a, a prosecuting sense, looks at me, this is, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, and convicts me? I tell you the truth. And so I think this idea of, of, of prosecuting conviction is what's in view here. But really, if you think about it, by this form of conviction, this judicial form of conviction, it involves both proving, it takes evidence to make a verdict, Right? And it has the idea of convincing. You have to be convinced of something to make a valid judgment. So I really think there's all three in mind. But I think we have the idea that the Spirit acts essentially as God's prosecuting attorney for the world. And then as I said, Jesus essentially gives us a commentary of these three things. Uh, Look with me at verse 9. Concerning sin, they because they do not, or excuse me, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So those are the three things. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus does something here he doesn't often do. And that's give information and then explain the entirety of information. But this is one of those times that if you read it, it actually raises more questions, right? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's work through it together. First of all, concerning, he will convict the world concerning sin. And Christ states, this is the very reason the Spirit will convict the world. And the Spirit, or the sin here is very specific. Concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. So you shouldn't think of it just as this general term of sin. You should actually think of it as a particular kind of sin. He will convict the world of the sin of not believing Jesus. So the Spirit prosecutes the world because they deny Jesus. It's a, as we said, it's a specific kind of sin. Uh, Jesus has already connected the idea of unbelief with judgment multiple times in the gospel. Chapter 8, verse 21 and 24. Chapter 9, verse 41. And he'll do it in chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. Chapter 8, he actually makes it very specific that the judgment is specifically related to his departure. John 8, 21, a passage we studied a little while ago. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So you notice that 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 judgment is specifically related to his departure. The departure that he is now making real here in the upper room. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Verse 24 of chapter 8, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you sin by not believing Jesus, you will die in your sins. And so he will, the Spirit will convict the world that saying no to Jesus is saying yes to the judgment of God. Secondly, he will convict the world concerning righteousness. He will convict the world concerning righteousness. Now you obviously understand what he's not doing is he's not saying he will convict the world 
by saying they need to be more righteous because the world is not righteous. There's none righteous, not even one. So what he's saying is he will convince them, he will judge them, he will convict them of their need for righteousness. So Jesus is essentially initiating a new standard bearer for righteousness. Notice what he says. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. This This is very logical. Don't overthink this. When Jesus was here, they knew what righteousness looked like. Why? Because they could see it in Jesus Christ. If you're a good parent, your kids know what love looks like. Because they can see it in you. If you're a good spouse, your spouse will know what humility and selflessness looks like. Because they can see it in you. God the Son, Jesus Christ, evidences to the world, and specifically while He was here, what righteousness looks like. Because He is the righteousness of God, manifest in the flesh. But He's going away, right? So now they need to see righteousness a different way. Now they need to be convinced that they will be judged if they are not righteous, and there is none righteous, except those that Christ redeems. And even then, their righteousness is not fully glorified until Jesus comes back to get them, or they die and go to heaven. And so we need a new persuading agent. The Spirit persuades that we are unrighteous, or not right according to the standard of God, and the Spirit convicts that individual of their sufficiency according to the righteousness of God. You say, what does that mean? We have a standard set for us in the Bible. Be holy as I am holy. You say, well, I can't do that. You're right, you can't. Neither can I. But the righteousness of God made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ can be credited to our account by that righteous son's death, burial, and resurrection, and by not disobeying the sin of unbelief, or by by obeying the command to believe. If we disobey the command to believe, there is no righteousness available to us. But he credits the believers with righteousness. Therefore, they do not stand before God as guilty, They stand before God as justified, fully, by His grace. So I don't stand before God. This is the doctrine of justification pictured for us. I don't stand before God in His throne room and say, hey, you should save me because, I mean, I I said a few bad words, but I never killed anybody. You should let me into heaven because I slipped up a few times, but I never did anything really bad. It's the people of God standing in the throne room of God, pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, you should save me because of Him. That's that's the reason I have any right to salvation. The righteousness of God. 
manifest in the flesh the person of Jesus Christ. It will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. You say, well, this is a fascinating phrase. Why would he say this? Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. We've already heard of the ruler of this world back in chapter 12. It is obviously Satan. However, I think another ex- a way to understand this is, is to find another title of Satan that's also in John 8, where Jesus calls him the father of lies. I love that passage so much. The, the, disciple, the, the Pharisees, the religious rulers say, we're of our father Abraham. And what does Jesus say? Your daddy's the devil. You are of your father, Satan, and he is the father of lies. So he says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Because Satan, the father of lies, will be judged for his act of rebellion against God. He is judged for his act of rebellion against God on the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies it seal, and resurrects, it seals the condemnation of Satan. And so this is literally just Jesus cutting the head off of a snake. When you want to get rid of a snake so that it never comes back again, you deal with its head. Or you get your husband to deal with its head. Or your neighbor or whatever. This is Jesus cutting the head off the snake. If the father of lies, the ruler of the world is judged, you can be certain his followers are in judgment as well. Brother, sister, there's no enemy that God won't silence. He will convict the world. And this is what he's doing in the world. This is what the Spirit's doing in the world right now. Right now. Say, how do I know that? You're here, aren't you? You're here, aren't you, brother and sister? Why would you be here? Well, because I said yes. Why did you say yes? Because no one comes unless the Father draws him. So every single one of you in this room, who claims the name of Jesus, and you do so truly, is a living, breathing miracle that the Holy Spirit's doing this in the world. Because the natural man receives the Spirit of God as foolishness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 2. But if the Spirit makes alive that dead man, and we believe. So he convicts the world. Secondly, he clarifies the word. He clarifies the word. Look with me at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but he, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. This is incredible. This is incredible. Uh, let's just ask a really basic question. Verse 13, 
when the spirit of truth, he's already been called that, the paraclete, he's already been called that back in chapter 13 and 14, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. Now, I do think that this promise specifically is very narrow to the disciples. I think the disciples understood things that you and I will not understand in this life. I think the spirit made things all, all things clear to them. All things that, that God wanted to be made clear to them. But he will not speak on his own authority. The Holy Spirit's not going to come and say, Hey, I have a new message. Why do I say that? Because some of you may have heard a preacher on TV who said, I received a message from the Spirit. And he told me this. Did you read that? He will not speak on his own authority. The Spirit will not say anything. What's it say? But whatever he hears. Who did he hear it from? God. So let's be really careful with this kind of, I heard a message from the Spirit thing. Because you probably didn't. Or that preacher probably didn't. He spoke to me and he said these words and he was very specific and then this happened and whatever. He will not say anything new. He will say things that are old. And how do you find what is old? You read about it. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Again, this is the disciples. The disciples will understand what is to come. And this is why I say these acts are submissive. He's not going rogue. He's not saying anything new. He's, he's he, he is explaining for us the words of Jesus. He's turning on the words, the, the understanding of the words of Jesus. He's speaking the words of the Father. He's reiterating and explaining and illuminating what has already been said. And he will glorify me. So thirdly, so he'll convict the world. He'll clarify the words. And he will cultivate worship. He will cultivate worship. The Spirit will glorify the Son. How? By convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. By clarifying the word and making clear Everything Jesus has said. And when we understand the Spirit and what He says specifically about the Son, we understand the Son. Therefore, His people bring glory to the Son. Every inclination in you to sing words of praise, every time you hear something from the Word that stirs your heart to worship, Every time you encourage a brother or sister and you walk away with the, the beautiful and wonderful feeling that you've just enriched one another with gospel truth, it's because the Spirit has done something where the people of God come together and say, isn't Jesus awesome? We should praise Jesus. Jesus deserves glory. This is what the Spirit does. And again, it's what He's doing right now in this room and in your heart. It's awesome. It's awesome. 
All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in conclusion, I want you to notice the absolute unity of the work of Christ in relation to the works of the Spirit. The Spirit fulfills the work of Christ for the worship of Christ. This is one of those things that has been absolutely butchered about the theology of the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit and it places, people have placed themselves at the center of the theology of the Holy Spirit. And so it sounds something like this. The Spirit just pumped me up and I was able to do awesome things. And it's like the Holy Spirit's some Christian energy drink. And so we just get amped up and we do awesome things and, and then we brag. Here's what I did. I was given courage to face my enemy or face my battle or face my trial. And I did it. By the power of the Spirit. This is why we preach Christ. Because when we preach Christ, it engages the fullest and purest of the Spirit's work in worship. This is why we walk in the Spirit as Jesus' followers, because it evidences the personality and nature of Jesus. And this is why we must have a biblical view of God's Spirit, because if we don't, inevitably we'll follow a bad view of God's Son. And the quickest way to make Christianity self-centered and self-oriented is to take your eyes off of Jesus Christ. David Watson says this, and we'll, we'll close. David Watson was an Anglican pastor in the early 1900s. He says this in his commentary about 6, 14, chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 16, verse 14. This verse is decisive against all additions and pretended revelations subsequent to and besides Jesus Christ. It being the work of the Spirit to testify the things of Christ, not to anything new or beyond Jesus. Therefore, any good test of a new work of the Spirit of God is this. Is Jesus Christ glorified? Is Jesus at the center? If Christians claim some blessing of the Spirit, have they a new love for Jesus? a new hunger for His Word, a new desire to tell others about Him, these are the crucial issues. Listen, personal experiences without these Christ-centered consequences are either meaningless or counterfeit. The work of the Spirit places Jesus front and center. And the followers of Jesus who walk in the Spirit are concerned that Jesus is front and center. So brother and sister, we're in this age, in this time, to do the things God has for us right now. And until Jesus comes back, God has commissioned and equipped His people in this time, to work His works in submission.
to the Spirit. Let's pray.